following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. come in our study of the Gospel of John to chapter 8. I'm going to read for you from John 8 this morning, actually taking in the last verse of chapter 7, John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Some of you will recognize right away we're dealing with something unique here, and if you don't know what that means, there's a note probably printed in your Bible before this chapter telling you why this is a somewhat unique part of Scripture, and I am going to address that subject briefly. But listen first as I read this, the Gospel of John, 753, on into chapter 8. They went each to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them, the scribes and Pharisees, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. May God instruct us this morning from his word. I think it was a few weeks ago that someone wrote a letter to the editor of the Lancaster newspaper, fairly typical letter that we get in our county of many conservative Christian folks. This person was quoting some scripture from the Old Testament. They were making a point about the fiery debate today about same-sex attraction and so-called gay marriage. And this person was quoting from the law of God, Leviticus 18.22, the verse that says rather bluntly, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for it is an abomination. I believe they quoted some other verses of a similar type. And of course, as a Christian, they were giving the law of God and feeling, why don't people simply listen to God's plain word? 
Well, I pretty much expected it, and as expected, there came an answer letter to this. It was only a few days when someone wrote a reply and and mentioned this particular letter and the things it spoke as unpopular truths. And the second letter, primarily in its tone, ridiculed the very idea that somebody would think the Old Testament law in any way can apply to life today. This I don't have the copy of it, so I'm paraphrasing, but I know I'm not distorting the letter. When the person said, do we advocate stoning a disobedient son? The Old Testament says that. Do we keep separate dishes to boil milk and fry meat? The Old Testament says that. And this person then said, and I can almost say his very words, we all know that from the New Testament day onward, Jesus set aside the law and called for mercy and forgiveness to prevail. So today, he said, the standard is, judge not lest you be judged. Which, by the way, is the most twisted out of context scripture of all time, if you didn't know that. So this second writer was saying, in our time, the law of God defining human sin is annulled. We don't need it anymore. And wonder of wonders, it was Jesus who set it aside. And now it is implied that God's mercy accepts people just the way they are. They can do anything they want. And somehow or other, by the end of life, a blanket of divine forgiveness will settle down upon them, no matter how they have defied God in any manner. I talked with members of our church who experienced a particular tragedy to a relative of theirs just recently, a young man who had lived his life just as recklessly as you can live it, and then died of a drug overdose. And they said to me, you know, we're looking at the Facebook replies on this young man's site of people saying how they'll miss him and what a fine young man he was and how he's surely in a better place and all of those things. And, and the wife said to me, because she knew I said this in my book about after death, what comes. All you have to do today to go to heaven is die, because all your friends will imagine you there no matter what you did with your life. Well, that conclusion of that second letter writer that, you know, Jesus just created a new era and the law is done and over with is just as much an evidence of his biblical illiteracy as anything could possibly be. It's 100% wrong. Indeed, there is grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. But it is not falling upon all regardless of faith or regardless of those seeking it or not seeking it. Now, I have to step aside for a moment and speak about our text and how unusual it is today because some of you might even be surprised that I'm preaching on this text if you understand the issues that are involved here. This is one of a very few rare paragraphs in the Bible that need to have these things said about it. If you have your Bible in front of you, you almost certainly have a note inserted in between chapter 7 and chapter 8 that says something like, I have in mind, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. And yet it's printed here. And you wonder, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? I've never seen this before. You probably haven't. The only substantial other paragraph like this is the longer ending of Mark at the end of Mark 16, which is even more doubtful as far as its place belonging 
in the original Scripture. Let me just take a minute to tell you what's going on here and, and why we think we ought to pay attention to this text. You see, we don't have the original documents of the Bible. We don't have the letter on its physical papyrus that John wrote or that Paul wrote Romans with or Isaiah wrote his book or something else. We have to reconstruct what the original documents were, and we do that by having hundreds, hundreds, and even thousands of old, old, old copies. And we have copies of copies of copies of copies. So what we try to get is the earliest copies that can be dated by the papyrus carbon testing and other things. And the older the copy is, we would say, the more close it is, of course, to the original. If I started a, some kind of a, a letter, a chain letter around this congregation, and I said, all right, here, here's a document. Would you copy, write, Jeff Trimbath, write a copy of this, then pass it to your friend who will pass it to their friend, who will pass it to their friend, who will pass it to their friend, and each one copy the document. I'll guarantee you that by the time it goes through a hundred people, the copy is different. Somebody has dropped a word or revised a word or maybe a whole sentence. The copy is different. That's what happened with the copies that were made of the Bible. So we go back and try to get the very earliest copies, the most reliable ones, to see what they say, and that's how we know what the original, now you say, well, wait a minute, it sounds like we can't really know what the original Bible said. Well, folks, it's not really that much of a problem. In 99.9% of all cases, it's not a problem. We know what the original said. But there are these few rare spots where we have something that a few early copies do have, but most of them don't. And that's the case with the first part of John 8. The few copies that do have it are pretty reliable manuscripts and not to be ignored, but there are so many that don't have it that it raises a question. So what should we do with this passage? Actually, the, this, this incident of the woman caught in adultery does in, in some, a very small number of copies, appear in the Gospel of Luke. We think that's wrong. But we also have to come to this pretty safe conclusion that it probably wasn't in the original manuscript that John wrote. Why then are we considering it? We say, this is specious. This is maybe not the real Bible. Well, as conservative a scholar as Calvin said, this is a passage that contains nothing that is unworthy of the apostolic spirit, and in fact, it reflects the truth of Christ. In modern day, John MacArthur, it may be a name you know, very conservative man today, very knowledgeable of God's Word, who says, no matter how this originated, it depicts the wise, forgiving Jesus who fully respects the law of God, and it is consistent with the picture of Him in the rest of Scripture. So we're saying what we seem to have here is a consistent picture of Bible truth, not some strange kind of new doctrine being taught. So even though there's some oddity about how it fits, we think we might learn something from this passage, and I encourage you to try to do that today. In the first place, here's a passage that asks the question, how does Jesus Christ regard the breaking or the violation of the Old Testament law. That's the subject before him. He's being brought a case and saying, Rabbi, tell us what you think. Give us an opinion on this matter. 
Now, I remind you of what the conclusion of people like that second letter writer to the Lancaster paper uh, would say today. In one form or another, they would say something like, well, you know, the, the law of God, that was for a long time ago. That was for Israel. That's out of date. Even the New Testament has completely put that aside. And then they would go on to make an even worse conclusion and say, God doesn't really care about your sin. Yes, he sees that you're not all you should be, and we all make mistakes, but, but don't worry. He's kind of lowered the ultimate bar standard, and, and even with your life of kicking and screaming against him and living contrary to his will, you'll get in. Don't worry. God likes everybody. Well, fortunately, that kind of blanket grace policy is not the teaching of the Scripture. Many people would like to say just about anybody in the whole world can sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The problem is people don't think they're wretches. And they don't think they need salvation. And they don't think they need to bow before Christ, which is the message that John Newton was conveying when he wrote that hymn in the first place. Well, here in John 8, we have Jesus being singled out by opponents for a trap. Now, we've seen this all the way through the gospel so far. There are people who want to trip him up, people who want to, to get him to say something that won't fit, you know, that they can e- either too strict or too lenient, and then they can say, aha, Jesus said, and take that to their courts and, and get him in trouble. That's the whole intent of this. Now, we know that when they come with this kind of a clear-cut instance, if indeed this woman was caught in an act of adultery, if indeed she was married and had sex with a man or he was married, having sex with her, whatever, she committed adultery. And Exodus 20, the commandment of God, says, you shall not commit adultery. Leviticus goes beyond that in, in giving in Israel rather strict, stringent ways in which to enforce that, Leviticus 20 does say the death penalty for those who commit adultery. Interestingly, the way this text reads, the Pharisees, when they brought the woman, said, women who do this should die at the end of verse 5. I apologize to the Pharisees, but you're quite wrong. Leviticus says, anyone who does this should die. And of course, you notice somebody's missing in this whole thing. There was a man involved. Where is he? Perhaps he was fleet of foot. I don't know. But he's not here. And he's not being convicted as he should be on a strict legal basis. The law of God shows that God is holy. That means he's different. He's distinct from us. He has standards because he is righteous in his being. He is not sinful, and he cannot tolerate sin. In Leviticus 11, he says, I am the Lord your God. Be holy because I am holy. And then his law goes on to show what it means to be separate from the inevitable sin of mankind. And Romans 7:12 says God's law itself is holy, and his commandments are excellent and good. Don't think of the law as something bad. It's good because it shows what God is like. It shows the character of God. However, it also brings us to the inevitable verdict that we can't keep it. 
we're sinful and we can't keep the law of God in our own efforts. We're going to break it, if not in action, in thought, or in some way every single day. And that law that we break condemns us. So what are we to do? The dilemma here is how can God ever find a way to forgive, to show mercy to human beings who break his holy and good law? Either he says, my law doesn't matter, don't worry about it, it's okay to break it. Or he says, no, wait a minute, my law is an absolute and you've broken it and we have to do something here. If I'm going to forgive you, there has to be a way that I can somehow bring my mercy together with my law. Paul stated the dilemma in Romans 3, 26. How can God be both just, a law keeper, and the one who justifies? How can he do that? And that, in essence, is what this little episode is all about here. How does Jesus Christ, regard a violation of the law, how is he ever going to bring mercy to bear? So secondly, I would say this. We learn here that God's law and God's mercy can come together, but they can do it only one place in history and time and space, and that is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I will accept your comment that the cross is not actually spoken about in this passage, and also that it had not happened yet. This is before Jesus died, of course. But I would say to you that what he is saying here is a demonstration of what the cross makes possible. This is very unusual. You know, we expect unusual behavior from Jesus. He's always unconventional. He doesn't do what people expect him to do most of the time. And one of the reasons this story is so memorable is this saying that instead of answering them, instead of playing their game and and having a debate with them, he drew something on the ground. I have no idea. You know, maybe you say, what in the world did he draw? Was he doodling? Uh, Was he writing some kind of Hebrew words? Was he writing out some verse of Scripture? The plain fact is we don't know. And the other plain fact is it doesn't actually matter. He was doing that as a tactic to silently let these people think a little bit and drive some, some ideas home into their hearts and their consciences. And then after he had been silent and they were getting a little impatient and looking at each other, when's this guy going to reply anyway? What's he doing? Why is he drawing on the ground? He stood up and said, let the one among you who is without any sin throw the first stone. In fact, you know, he could have said, I don't claim that he did say this, but I'm maybe expanding the text a little bit. But maybe he said, go ahead, find the best rock you can. Get a big one. Pick it up. Hoist it in your hand. Hold on to it for a moment. While you're holding on to it, let me ask you, before you throw it, which one of you is without sin? And the text says, starting with the oldest of them, those who are experienced know their consciences a little better, down to the youngest, the stones dropped, and they walked away. They didn't have anything to say either. Can you see how brilliant this was? Jesus basically said, I do recognize this sin. She has sinned. Yes, the man should be here too, and he isn't. And yes, you people are ganging up on her, and that's sinful in itself. But yes, she 
has broken God's law and your right. The letter of the law says she ought to die. Jesus upheld God's law. But then he said, look, if you're going to become God's execution squad, you're entitled to do it if you're without sin yourself. And the bright beam of the Holy Spirit shined into these people. And Jesus didn't have to to point them out and say, you've sinned this way and you've sinned this way and you've sinned. They told themselves. They knew the answers. They knew what they'd done. They knew their lives. And every single hypocritical accuser walked away. Now, again, the cross is not mentioned here. But it is the key that brings all this together. Because we know that in the sacrificial death of Christ on his cross, he died to do what? To satisfy all the demands of the law of God on our behalf. In him, all that the law demanded that we could not do, that constantly accuses us and and makes us feel guilty of how we don't perform according to God's desires, was dealt with. And so Jesus could say, I will die on a cross, and when I die on the cross, I'm going to satisfy the law of God. That entitles me, of all people, to grant you mercy, because the law has been satisfied. Romans 8, 3 says what the law could not do for us because of the weakness of our flesh, God's Son did by becoming in the flesh himself and fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. Isaiah anticipated it. Way back, that familiar passage of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for, on behalf of, our iniquities. He was crushed for us. By his stripes we are healed. He died that the law, which was our judge and executioner, so to speak, would be satisfied. First Peter 2 states it another way. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so we might die to sins and live to righteousness. He died to satisfy the law. He said, do you think I came to put the law aside? I came to fulfill it. Every dot and every I, every crossbar and every T of the law of God will be fulfilled in me. None of it will be set aside. And so, Jesus, you see, if the law is like a stone that falls on your head to crush you, and the mercy of God is an open hand, this is the cross. Jesus put them together. He fulfilled the law of God. And he brought mercy into the picture And he said by that that God could be both just and the one who justifies at the same time. He could give away mercy free. Why? Because it had been paid for. It was not free to begin with. It was very costly. He paid the cost. Now it's free and his to dispense. And so we come into third place in this text to John 8, 11 with what I'm calling nine words that only Jesus Christ has authority to say. Nine words in the English. It was different in the language he spoke. Those words are these. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Sin no more. 
neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. He alone could say that because he satisfied the law of God and therefore he has the exclusive franchise on issuing the mercy of God. Not because God has somehow changed the terms and wiped his law out and said, oh, it just doesn't matter anymore. Live your life as you please. You know, claim that whatever behavior you want to conduct, no matter how much condemned by the Old Testament it is and how bizarre it is. Oh, that's just the way I'm made. I can't help it. God will forgive me. No. The law of God must be satisfied. And it was satisfied in the cross of Jesus. Now mercy can be dispensed. You know, this poor woman was, we don't even have her name, you notice. She was sinned against as well as a sinner. These people who dragged her around like she was a bundle of rags and sneered at her and snarled at her were certainly very blameworthy people. Her male partner who had fled somehow was blameworthy. But she too was responsible. She was a lawbreaker. But interestingly, before her stood the one person, not only the one person in Jerusalem, not only the one Jewish teacher, but the one and only person in the history of planet Earth, in the universe, stood before her, the person who had a right to say, if you are repentant, if you trust in me, if you recognize what I have done and will do to satisfy the law of God, then here's a fountain of mercy ready to pour out upon you. God's justice is satisfied for you because I died to satisfy that. I want you to notice something. I I hadn't seen this about this passage for many years, but saw it in a comment someone wrote a number of years ago. We're not told in John 8 of a happily ever after ending on this little incident. I think we, we kind of assume that the woman was a believer, don't we? But we're actually not told that. She did call him Lord, but that was a term of respect that didn't necessarily mean faith. We're not actually told how she responded. That's kind of interesting. She doesn't speak words of faith here. There's a mystery as to whether she repented or even thanked him. But in a way, that's a good thing because with her not reacting to receive this gift of mercy, it kind of leaves a blank line at the end of the text. And it's a blank line that your name could be filled in. Because here's Jesus speaking these nine words to you. Neither do I condemn you. Blank line. Go sin no more. It's a standing offer, you see. A standing offer from that day till now. Jesus did not wave a magic wand of universal salvation for every man, woman, and child who would ever live to somehow enter the gates of heaven regardless of what attention they pay to him or whether faith or no faith, repentance or no repentance. That is not what is taught here. Absolutely not. But he did say, I've dealt with the law of God. And I'm now the one who can deal the mercy of God. And I offer that mercy to you to receive it individually as you bow your life before me and call me Lord. 
Maybe this woman's response was left unclear so that you and I would write our names into this passage and take this offer. Jesus, the Son of the highest God, is prepared to tell every person who approaches him in simple, humble faith, by the mercy completed in my cross, I do not condemn you. Go now. Live a new life. Sin no more. Thanks be to God. Our Father, thank you for a Savior like this. One who wasn't just a a generous, kind, compassionate man to see a woman in a broken state and to reach out to her because he was kind. He was that. But there's much more than kindness here. Father, thank you for a Savior who accomplished what was necessary so that law could meet grace and mercy. I pray for the one here who needs to learn that. May it be a lesson printed deep on our lives. For your honor and praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.